This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So we've been going through these the, the series on the attributes of God and talking through these these things about God that we we should understand, but then also things that should be very true in us. And we've talked about how there are certain things that God has, certain characteristics that He's able to imbue in us, and He offers to us, and we're supposed to manifest those things. So today we're going to talk about something that might seem very very basic, very simple very rudimentary, and yet it's something that is extremely elusive. And that is the idea of peace. Now, you you likely have a definition in your head about what peace is. Uh, we use the word in so many ways. Uh, it's it's uh, become kind of a, a way to say goodbye to folks. You just kind of throw up the deuces and say peace. Uh, there's a lot of times where people are, uh, in, in some other cultures, they greet each other by saying peace. Uh, there's a Hebrew word uh, that is uh, very uh, used very often within uh, Jewish communities, and it's the word shalom. And the word shalom, it does mean peace but it's a much more holistic word than you may think. The idea of real holistic peace is more than just having um, being emotionally centered. It's more than not having uh, a lot of emotional dissonance, right? It's more than, than, uh, than just making sure that I'm not angry, making sure that I'm not upset. There are, there's a depth when we talk about peace that God is completely comprised of, but he also offers to us. So we've got to figure out what does it really mean then to be to, to be about peace? How is God a God of peace? What does it mean in the Old Testament for God to be a God of peace? And then how do we see that replicated in the New Testament in God being this God of peace? So when we talk about shalom, whenever we think about shalom, shalom is this idea of completeness soundness, uh, uh, holistic welfare. That's that's peace. Now, it's a very broad concept. Many times the word in the scripture is used uh, to describe uh, justice, to describe mercy, to describe uh, righteousness, to describe compassion, uh, truthfulness. All of those things combined together is what we mean when we say shalom and peace. So it's not enough to just feel good temporarily when there are other things that are broken, that's not full shalom. So there can't be any peace without justice, right? You can't have peace if there's not fair judgment and, and fair punishment. It's In order for things to be peaceful, there has to be a, a way of making things right whenever things have been afflicted. So shalom is this effect of righteousness, the practice of truth, the practice of justice. It's the condition where God leads nations to settle their conflicts. You see this back in in the book of Micah, when he talks about beating their plows into plowshares. It's this condition where the wolf lives with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the kid, the the calf lying down with uh, with the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them in Isaiah. So there's this big picture here 
of what shalom, this big picture of what peace is. It's not this 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 uh, very narrow uh, definition of peace. It's extremely broad. Now you might not know this, but the Hebrew word for shalom has its same roots with with uh, with the Jews' Semitic cousins uh, in 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 Arabic. And in the word Arabic, it's the word salamu. You'll hear those who are Muslims say salamu lankum, right? That salamu and shalom come from the same root word, come from the same background. It's this idea of peace. From the beginning of recorded history, mankind has always sought after some form of holistic peace, has always offered or thought they could offer a form of peace. Because that those words there are the literal meaning of being faultless, being healthy, being complete, being whole. So, so it's in our nature to long for that kind of peace. Why? Because we were made in the image of a God that is full of peace. And yet, on our own, it seems ever elusive. On our own, we can't seem to find that true sense of wholeness. Why? Because especially in our culture, We think peace is merely the absence of conflict. We believe that peace occurs as long as there is no manifested conflict before us. As long as people aren't throwing hands at each other, as long as people aren't throwing grenades at each other, as long as people aren't shooting or stabbing each other, as long as they aren't yelling invectives at each other, then there must be peace. When I spent time uh, being deployed in the Middle East, uh, you couldn't miss the times when you would see uh, United Nations peacekeepers, right? Their job was to be there to ensure that if there were warring factions, that things didn't pop off because of their close proximity. In order to be the, the job of the peacekeeper was not necessarily to resolve the conflict. It was to ensure that the, the conflict itself wouldn't lead to actual war, wouldn't lead to uh, them beginning to to try to get revenge on one another. Because usually peace in the history of mankind, peace has always been something that has been fought over and whoever won that war or won that battle got to determine the terms of peace. It was rarely, if ever, just based off of, you know what? We realize that the reason why we had this conflict, it was rooted in some really bad things. We're removing our reason for being angry altogether. That that doesn't happen. Countries fight. Whoever wins forces the other into a peace treaty. And all it is is just a way to keep peace. We still have the same conflict. We still feel the same things that we feel. We just know we don't have the arms that you do. And so we have to abide by this treaty that you've put in place for us. That's how we understand peace. And God offers something far deeper. That's the reason why Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. In order to be a peacemaker, It's not enough to ensure there's not conflict. A peacemaker does the heavy lifting and the hard work to remove the reason for the enmity altogether. And we do not do that well on our own. It is impossible for us to do that well on our own. That's where we find ourselves then as we look at this idea 
of peace, this comprehensive understanding of peace, the Old Testament word shalom, that word gets carried over into the New Testament, expressed in a Greek word, a classical Greek word, Irene. So if you've known anybody named Irene, you don't really see younger people being named that as much now, but the name Irene comes from that Greek word uh, for peace. This is now God's gift, God's blessing, this idea of prosperity and well-being being understood as both outward and inward. So again, it's it does not mean that uh, looking for inward peace is not peace. It is. But there's this idea that total peace is both inward and outward. There's this picture of things being made right internally as well as being made right externally. So in this passage that we're going to look at, You've got Jesus in the New Testament showing himself to be the source of peace. He's showing that his life reveals the spirit of peace. Jesus, God the Son, is revealing the very attribute of God the Father, showing God to us, being God to us, and showing us this is what it means for God to be a God of peace, and this is what it means for you now to have the very peace of God so that you can dispense it as well. This peace that he bestows upon his disciples, all of us who are followers of Jesus. So to that end, I'm going to read John chapter 14, uh, verses 27 through 31. Verse 27 says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. You've heard me tell you I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you love me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. I have told you before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me, on the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do as the Father commanded me. Get up, let's leave this place. This is the words of our Lord. Thanks be to God. When you, when you think through uh, what peace looks like, this can be a passage that may not make a whole lot of sense. Because remember, this is really a part of Jesus's farewell dis- discourse. He's getting ready to leave. He's getting ready to be taken. He's getting ready to be killed. The disciples still don't quite understand it yet. They get very afraid whenever he talks like this. As a matter of fact, Peter the one who really kind of gets a, a lot of temper flaring and whenever he hears this, you know, Jesus brings this up before and he's like, no, 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 far be it from me. Don't, don't go there. Don't talk that way. And Jesus rebukes him because his anxiety rises up. Hey, that information disrupts my inner peace and I can't deal with that. I can't handle that. Please don't talk like that. And Jesus has to call him out. So you might look at this and go, well, how is Jesus leaving them any sense of peace here when something horrible is getting ready to happen? How Jesus knows that his death is imminent. He he knows what's getting ready uh, to happen. And yet in the midst of all of this, he bequeaths his peace to his inner circle. And we know later they're going to be so desperately in need of this peace when the suffering and death is getting ready to begin. And many of this, much of this suffering and death is going to fall upon them like a tidal wave. And so like you see, most of the sections of Jesus's lengthy farewell discourse, this specific set, uh, section gets prompted by an earlier question. If you go back to verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, this is uh, likely the, the author of the book of Jude, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And then Jesus answered, 
If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the father who has sent me. I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. So this starts with a question and they're going, Lord, how are you? How are you going to reveal yourself to us and then, but not to the world? You're starting to show us these things. We're not making sense of this. We don't understand what's going to happen. And then uh, Jesus responds. His reply focuses on two things. The first focus is I'm giving you the Holy Spirit because I know that things are getting ready to come your way. That's going to make you forget the truth that I've taught you because that's who we are. That's what we do. If things get difficult, when things get troublesome, the, the, what I'm inclined to do is forget the things that I know because I can only trust what I can see. And so Jesus says, the first thing I'm doing, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit so that when, not if, when things come that can cause you to get unnerved, I'm going to give you something that's going to continue to teach you about who I am and remind you about who I am. Because you're going to need to be reminded regularly and you will not be reminded on your own. You will not remember on your own. Your intelligence, your willpower, your determination will not be enough on your own. This is the first thing we've got to understand that sometimes we think that one of the best ways to fight doubt is with intense determination. And it's been said many, many times, determination alone is not always the, the, uh, the answer to doubt or the answer to a lack of success. There are many people, many people, many dead bodies on Mount Everest who are incredibly determined. But determination alone doesn't do it. Jesus knows determination alone is not going to be enough to give you the necessary wisdom to deal with or the necessary knowledge in order to deal with what's coming and or the necessary remembrance in order to deal with what's coming. You're going to need more than just your own determination and your training and your hard work. You're going to need the Spirit of God. So he makes that clear first. He says, I'm going to give you something that's going to teach and remind you. Then he comes to the text that we read. Peace I give to you. So, so I give you the, the Holy Spirit and I give you peace. Peace is highly related, but it's still a very distinct gift. And while the gift of peace participates in the tradition of shalom as both a greeting and a farewell, the peace is a promise of this ongoing presence because it harkens back to the gift of peace that was inaugurated by Jesus, by our Messiah, the righteous rule of the Prince of Peace that will be eternal. That's why he says, I don't give to you as the world gives. He says that immediately after repeating twice this gift of peace, of his own peace. And he repeats it with using this word, the world. Look again at how he says, he says, I, I give you this. And he says, I give you peace, not as the world gives. I do not give to you as the world gives. Why, why is he juxtaposing peace that he gives with peace that the world gives? Why does he bring, what point is he making? Well, that word uh, cosmos, that word world is the word cosmos, and it's a very broad usage, so you have to look at the context to understand. Sometimes the word world is just simply, uh, uh, there's no moral agency assigned to it. It's just descriptive. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
those are just simply descriptors of he loved all of creation. He loved all of his image bearers. He, he, these are the things that he did, and this is what the world means there. Then there are other times where the world has uh, somewhat of a negative moral agency. So while uh, the word cosmos can be very elastic in its meaning, here it's very clear that the world has uh, something, uh, thre- something that threatens the very character of Jesus, the very character of God. What do we take from that? There's something outside of the character of Jesus that therefore becomes a threat to the character of Jesus. Anything that exists outside of the character of God can easily become a threat to the character of God. And so Jesus is really showing there's a peace that I give that is completely other than, that is outside the realm of the kind of peace that the world offers to give. Peace I give to you, my peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Then he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. Why does he have to say that? Why does he have to say, I'm going to give you this peace, this overwhelming, holistic peace. Don't be afraid. Don't let your heart be troubled. The reason why he says this is because the the, the primary reason why you, why me, why why I will struggle with holding and apprehending peace well is because I'm likely, you are likely looking to a peace that the world gives and you are being faced with the reality that it does not suffice. There's something that is seductive about the peace that the world will offer. It's very easy to be seduced by a peace that isn't from Jesus. You may not believe this, but it is extremely easy to start looking for other things to give you a a type of peace that truly doesn't come from God. And we might even delude ourselves, make ourselves think that it came from God. But really, it's a false peace that's not of this world. I'm going to offer three forms, three types of peace that this might take. The first is something that I think we all can relate to. We often seek permanent, lasting peace in places we'll never find. But we will find provisional peace. In other words, there's a temporary peace that provides some relief in the moment. There's there's a temporary peace that will give us a sense of uh, safety in the moment. I feel better for now. All right, I needed that for the moment. And again, things that are provisionally peaceful aren't necessarily bad, but we will ultimately look for ultimate peace there. We will look for that ultimate feeling of, okay, as long as I can have this feeling and and replicate it enough, then I'll be peaceful enough and then I won't be afraid. And Jesus knows that that's not going to work for you which is why he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Put your hope in the right kind of peace so that anxiety won't come in. But what do we do? We look for provisional peace. What are examples of provisional peace? What are examples of things that might give us peace temporarily? Well, many of us will look for provisional peace in a political party, in financial security, in a beautiful house, in a romantic uh, relationship or partnership. In a, in a career promotion, in retirement, maybe a new ministry, maybe finding a new church. Listen, I, as a pastor of a church, would love for people to find some sense of peace by coming to a church. But I'm going to tell you now, if you're looking to find ultimate peace by coming even to this church or any church that you're at, 
you're going to find yourself getting anxious whenever the church fails to be that place of peace for you. When it fails to give you ultimate peace, I should say. We're not saying that you shouldn't have problems if there's a lack of peace and there's real issues or sin. But ultimately, if I'm looking for lasting, eternal peace based on any of these things, I'm going to find myself getting anxious eventually. Some people find great peace in the particular denomination in which they find themselves. Or you might find peace in the way church does church, liturgical preferences. I find great peace when I'm in a church that does church this way. I find great peace when I'm in a church that sings songs this way. Those things aren't bad. Again, those things are preferences. Nothing wrong with those. But if I'm finding ultimate peace in those things, then fear and anxiety is inevitable because those things don't sustain. This list can get longer and longer. Our mental abilities, our individual talents, physical talents, all those things. We, the list goes on and on and on. And sometimes it helps to just honestly assess the direction in which we're seeking ultimate peace. That's why you see in the Old Testament, you see in the Psalms, words that say, put not your trust in rulers, nor in any child of earth, for there is no help in them. That's what the psalmist says. And there's endless uh, endless variations of that kind of uh, an edict in scripture. We've got to be very careful that we don't put ultimate trust in these good things. I'll never forget, Tim Keller said it well, idols are when we take good things and make them ultimate things. Anything in which we, we try to place or find ultimate peace that's outside of Jesus is an idol. And idols will always crush you. Idols will always fail you. And when they fail, whenever your idol fails you, you're left with anxiety and fear. And that's why Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. Why? Because I've given you my peace, this holistic peace, this peace of Christ that we are to pursue because he's given it to us. So what do we trust in horses or, or weapons or military? Do we trust in chariots? No. Do we trust in riches? No. Why? Because ultimately they will fail us. It's not that they won't do good things for us. When, when we say they will fail us, I'm not saying lots of money wouldn't help. The Bible says money answers all things. Money is a great thing. But the problem is that money itself won't assuage the issues of loneliness, the issues of fear, the issues of anxiety. Because that's not something in which you can place ultimate trust. It's only provisional. It's only temporary. So if we look to provisional or temporal things for ultimate peace, we're going to we're going to wake up itchy, restless, dissatisfied when they disappoint us. These are the paths toward peace that oftentimes uh, become uh, these on ramps, these runways towards the peace that's Christ's. We have to look for that peace that is more holistic. But when our trust in these things are provisional. Uh, Th- what ends up happening is it, it lets up eventually and we start scrambling and we go look for the next thing that might give provisional help. So we jump. It's almost like a fix. I get my fix here and I felt peaceful here. There's sometimes again in church circles where it's like, I felt peaceful here, but some things, maybe some things were challenging and it interrupted some things that gave me emotional peace. I don't have emotional peace anymore. That's my litmus test for whether or not something must be right. So I'm going to find something else elsewhere. That's the danger with using how you feel as a litmus test for whether or not something is right. 
Sometimes how you feel is correct because it's reflective of God's heart. Other times how you feel may not be right because it's not reflective of God's heart, which means we need what? The Holy Spirit to teach and remind us of what's true so that we can measure what we're feeling at the same time. What do I mean by that? I brought this example up before, but I'll do it again because I tend to repeat myself. Remember Jonah's story. Jonah had direct words from God, heard it in his own ear, exactly what God told him to do. Go in this direction. Jonah went the opposite direction. God said, go to these people and say these things. God went the opposite. Uh, Jonah went the opposite direction. Jonah went the opposite direction, got on a boat to go completely in a different uh, way. And while there, how was he emotional? Seemed to be doing really well. How do we know? Because the man went to sleep in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a tempest. You can't be more peaceful than sleeping through a storm. Stop saying, I have peace about it and act like and acting as if that is the litmus test for truth. Jonah had great peace about it and slept through a whole storm and almost caused the death of everybody in the boat. You using your own emotions to determine whether or not something is right or not might end up getting people killed. You need to be taught and reminded what God has said. Then measure these emotions that are definitely real because God's emotional. He gives us emotions. But make sure that the Spirit is teaching and reminding first. That's the only way that we really get to that place where we know and and can hold real, authentic, holistic peace. It's not enough to just go, is my emotional measurement of this thing accurate enough? Do I feel good about it? All right, then that must be okay. Because in many in many ways, what we're doing is I'm choosing to do a thing and I'm asking God to co-sign the thing. If I feel like he co-signed it, then I have peace about it. You'll never see that being used in scripture as a way to determine whether or not God is doing something. Do I have peace about it? So we've got to really challenge ourselves there, right? Because that's not the kind of peace we're talking about. What we're talking about here is this peace of Christ, trusting in his peace. And here's what this means. We often will seek to build peace with the hope of arriving at a lasting, permanent solution. And we do it by trusting in the sheer strength of our own efforts. So what does that mean? Sometimes we might end up looking, it's kind of that second way of of peace that I was going to bring up here. Uh, We often will say, well, the way that I can really find peace, it's going to sound crazy because it's a good thing I'm going to say here. We find peace by serving people. That's going to be the best way for me to find uh, a real peace as a form of service to humanity, right? This is a noble and selfless and God-directed motive. I mean, God tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves, love our neighbor the way God has loved us. So we're supposed to do that. But be very careful because for some people, for many of us, sometimes we're running from our own fear and we're running from our own anxiety. And so we think we might be able to lose that fear and anxiety by just serving and serving and serving. But at the same time, we're not clinging to the peace of Christ. So there are folks who are doing all kinds of philanthropic efforts that still feel incredible anxiety and incredible loneliness. Why? Because really, even when we're serving one another, We should be co-creating paths to Jesus's peace at the same time. If anything, the work that we do for one another should be rooted in the peace that Christ is always giving us. So anytime that we are uh, bringing about peace in one another, helping making things right, allowing for life to be lived the way it should be lived, 
We should be viewing that as just passing the peace of Christ to others. They really should never be bifurcated. They shouldn't be separate things. One should be born out of the other. Be very careful that you're not trying to do a lot of good works with the hopes of hiding your own anxiety. If anything, it's it's this co-creation, right? I'm holding on to these paths of Jesus and his peace. And I'm also now able to create paths of, of, of peace uh, within my own community, within my own family, within my own nation. This is the peace of Christ. And that kind of peace, when we're pursuing it, if we're not pursuing the world's peace and we're pursuing the peace of Christ, that requires patience. It requires a persistence that only Christ supplies. What does that mean? It means we have to have an attentive eye, an attentive eye that allows us to recognize where where, where Christ's peace is already breaking forth. Sometimes it's slow growth that's not even assisted at all by our, by our well-organized efforts. And then other times, so many times when we said before the difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker, sometimes that means that in the midst of something that isn't right, we've got to immediately step in. We've got to immediately speak up. Sometimes making peace means there's conflict. Sometimes making peace means, okay, wait a minute now, we we, we can't just go on and act like there's no problem here. We've got to deal with this problem. And hear me, sometimes peacekeeping isn't bad either. You've got to have wisdom to know. Sometimes you're in the midst of, okay, we, we've got to get this job done right now. There's major conflicts happening. We may not have the time to deal with this now. So for the time being, this is what peacekeeping looks like with the hope and eventual uh, plan to really work out this conflict. Let's remove the reason for the conflict to begin with. It takes attention, it takes wisdom, and it takes persistence. Now, the peace that Jesus gives, the peace that God gives, the peace that God is, is manifested in every form of peace in both our daily life, individually, as well as corporately. This idea that Jesus is fulfilling his role as Messiah, the peace of Jesus makes it possible. Remember in Ephesians 2, when he talks about uh, the walls of hostility being broken down. Why? Because of the work of Jesus, because of the work of the Spirit, because of what salvation should be doing in us. That means that that the, the, the gospel gives us the power to overcome enmity and division. This is a peace that has come through the blood shed on the cross. It's through the death of Jesus that that he has overcome the very sources of enmity. Do you get this? Do you understand that the way Jesus made peace? Because it's, it's important for us to see this, right? God is peace. God is a God of peace. And then he says, he offers you his peace. Let's really drill that down. How did God, what did we say already? Peace exists when the reason for the enmity is removed. You might be thinking that God is a God that's so loving and is so peaceful because he just chose to overlook the brokenness that exists in us, the sinful that exists in us. He didn't choose to overlook that. He wouldn't be a just God if he just overlooked a sin and overlooked wrongdoing and overlooked wickedness. He doesn't do that. What he does is he says, I have to, in order for me to make peace with you, the reason for my enmity, the reason for our division needs to be removed. So what did he do to remove the reason for the enmity? 
he gave his son. Jesus came and died. He didn't just come and die for you to have fire insurance to ensure that you don't go to hell or or any separation from God. That's not the primary reason why he came. That is a huge blessing that we get to be with God and have eternal relationship with God. But he came also to remove whatever it was that distanced us from God in the first place. That's how peace works. The old King James had a word for it. It's the word expiation. This idea that the reason for the wrath of God is removed. That is a beautiful picture. Jesus came and died to save us from ourselves and to save us from the very thing that separated us from God, our sin. So God said, listen, I'm not overlooking your sin. I had to punish it. I had to deal with it. And the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus removes the reason for my anger. So now when I look before you, I can look at you and see you as clean, without spot, without blemish, innocent, not guilty, one of mine. When you know that, you can look at the things, even the things that are not right about you, the things that you are repentant of, the things that might bring shame and anxiety and fear, you no longer have to fear anymore because the peace of Christ is what you hold to now. The, the, the peace that the world offers is always temporary. So whatever you did to convince yourself that you're good enough, <clears throat> that you're not so bad, that's going to run out. Something's going to come back and remind you, no, you, you are still that bad. Something's going to remind you that you're still not quite where you need to be, and you're going to feel a sense of shame, a lack of security. You're going to feel all these different emotions that are going to be very negative, and then you're going to race to find something else to give you provisional peace yet again. Jesus gives us a peace in which we can find real hope and joy internally, and we can manifest that hope and joy externally. This internal peace, this external peace, that is the holistic nature of the peace of God. So when you look at uh, the, the, the forms and the structures of how that enmity uh, pervades and cuts through our lives, these dividing walls of hostility that we see in Ephesians 2, whether visible or invisible, they keep people, you and I, they keep us from sharing in the cosmic good. So externally, we see there are structures of, of enmity, structures of, of, dif- of otherness, structures of difference that describe the fact that the fabric of society is woven with these conflicting interests and deep-seated divisions. So often, uh, societies will have their bases, right? Their, their base is uh, rooted in, in imbalance, imbalance of, of power and irresponsible uses and abuses of power. Look throughout history. That's the reason why you could be an Irish Protestant and an Irish Catholic and war happens. You can be a Hindu and a Muslim and war happens. You can have Muslims and Christians and war happens. You can be Palestinian and Israeli and war happens. You can be Hutu and Tutsi and war happens. No soul is immune from this kind of enmity. No zone is enemy free. We are all on someone's hit list. Why? Because this is the enmity that exists. This is the sin nature that Jesus came to to undo, to rescue us from. So as a church, where do we stand? Let me ask a better question. As the church, big C, where do we stand? How does the church, those who claim to follow Jesus, how does the church react? How should the church react? 
Listen, the church cannot pretend not to be seriously affected because all the abuses to which I have referred here are found within Christian communities too. There's always people who have beef with each other. There's always issues that people just play nice, do the Southern bless your heart, smile in your face, deal with these other things or or bury stuff deep that never get really resolved and people just act like peacekeeping is what Jesus called us to do when we're really called to make peace. Remember, only one of those comes with a blessing. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's the only one that comes with a real blessing. But we keep stuffing it. We don't deal with the real issues. Some among us are inclined to see, uh, uh, some folks will look at this and go, well, this is inevitable. Can't do anything about it. Got to wait for Jesus. Can't do anything about that. Can't change, folks. That's it. Listen, you're right. You can't change anybody, but Jesus can. And so as long as we continue to rest and trust in the spirit of God and go, listen, I'm going to be making peace until the day that Jesus calls me home. So if it causes conflict, it's going to cause conflict, but I'm going to keep striving to be a peacemaker, not just exclusively a peacekeeper. But some folks will just go, well, nothing can be done about this. Can't do anything at all. Just got to wait for Jesus to come. But there's a, a contrast. There's a different way of viewing this. And the way we look at this differently, the way we look at this with the heart of God is to emphasize the inseparable connectedness of creation and salvation. The peace of God cannot be severed from peace on earth and with the earth. In other words, God came to rescue us, to, to, to redeem us and redeem all the things that cause the enmity between us. So that means that in order to be discipled well, to walk with Jesus well, we have to commit ourselves to the service of being a peacemaker. If we all are committed to that and we say, I'm rooted in peacemaking because I've been redeemed by a God that made peace with me. If God has made peace with me, then I can't give up on trying to make peace with you. Making peace with you, though, might not always be comfortable because you might only want me to just keep peace with you. Jesus called us to make peace. So there's a blessing in making peace. And this means that uh, internally or uh, relationally, interrelationally, this is what it looks like to to figure out the reasons why we might have these issues. And then externally or corporately, that's why we take the side of the poor and the powerless to witness to the truth, even when it might even put our lives or our livelihoods at stake, to be communities and agents of healing and salvation. Why? Because we have been rescued. We have been healed. We have been called into a community that promises wholeness. My peace I give unto you. Don't let your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. Why? Because the peace of God has come from the God of peace and he offers it to you. He deposits it in you. And we live into that. We trust in that. Anything else leads to anxiety and fear. May we be a people that is, that are focused, that are driven, that are moved, that are even broken into being a community that, that comprises real agents of healing, agents of salvation, agents of peace, so that we're known more for the ways in which we make peace and not just the ways in which we keep peace. Let's pray. Father, you are truly the God of peace. You tell us 
that the peace that passes all understanding will guard, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There's a guarding and a guiding that you do, Father, that you promise to give us. And so, Lord, I pray for your guidance. I pray that you will guard our hearts. I pray that you will guard our minds from, from seeking after peace in ways that only the world can offer. Father, I pray that you would allow us to do a deep diagnostic on areas in which we are placing our hope in a provisional peace and missing out on that eternal peace. God, continue to show us that you are a God of real peace and help us to have a large understanding of what that means. We know that you are more than just a God that helps us avoid conflict. Lord, you are the God that helps us resolve conflict. So Lord, teach us what it means to apprehend your peace and then to be able to dispense your peace well for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now let's receive this benediction of God. Listen to this God of peace, these words we use often. Listen to this. Again, these are the words from Jude, the very one who asked Jesus, how are you going to reveal yourself to us and not to other people? What are you going to show us? Who are you going to be? How are we going to trust when you're gone? Look at how the God of peace turned his own heart and listen to the words of Jude when he describes what the God of peace promises to do. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. Go in his peace. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.